From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. If this were an episode of Sesame Street, this episode of Sesame Street would be brought to you by Idaho's public records law, because uh, public records really helped us out on a couple of uh, stories this week. We love our public records, maybe even slightly more this week. We absolutely do. And Kevin, you had a fascinating story that I really, I was hanging on every word that you wrote looking at the emails uh, relating to the State Board of Education appointments, the governor's process to appoint. Uh, At the beginning of the year, we knew there were going to be two appointments coming open this year. A couple of terms expired. So far, we've seen one appointment. But it wasn't, it's not a process that's played out in public uh, so much. The appointment obviously was made publicly, and we saw that. But uh, about the applicant pool and about the process, just a lot of questions. And so you requested some emails and got just a fascinating look at the politicking and the behind the scenes push to fill what's an influential, coveted gubernatorial appointment, right? Well, no, thank you. Thank you for the, the kind words about this because I got to straight up say this was a fun story to write because uh, for political junkies like you and I, this whole process is really interesting. And, and what I wanted to try to do with the emails was to try to put you in the room where it's happening yeah. and, and give you a sense behind the scenes of how we got there because we know and we've reported some hiccups along the way here, some, some things that have occurred along the, the path on this uh, state board search that didn't really seem to go according to any kind of a, a set plan. You know, we've well documented that Sean Keough, the, the new member of the state board, didn't apply for a spot on the state board until fairly late in the process, uh, late August, as we now know, more than two months after this kind of non-binding, publicly announced deadline for applications, which was June 17th. We knew all of that. We know a little bit more now through the emails. And what I really just tried to do with this story was just sort of lay out the timetable and just sort of let the story tell itself a little bit by walking through what we found in these emails. So, So let's kind of recap the records here. So what I asked for uh, was every email that went to or from the governor's office regarding these two uh, state board vacancies. We didn't get every record. Um, the governor's office said some were exempt from public disclosure because they contained personnel information. And, and that, yeah. But what we did get was uh, 58 pages of emails to and from the governor's office, <laughs> including one from me <laughs> to the governor's right. office asking a follow-up question a couple of months, uh, a few weeks ago. But what was really interesting to me as, as I read the emails was just a sense of who was pushing for whom here. Um, you know, who, was, you know, who was offering advice to the governor's office about you know, potential nominees? And those are some pretty prominent folks in the education debate. Uh, folks like Rod Grammer from Idaho Business for Education sent several emails to the governor's office making suggestions, uh, you know, offering up possible names uh, of folks from the ranks of IBE. Terry Ryan from Bloom, the, um, the school choice nonprofit, he recommended a uh, school administrator from Salmon. Uh, uh, 
Mary Ann Reynolds, the uh, superintendent of the West Ada School District, recommended a, uh, an eye doctor from, uh, from Wallace, uh, former mayor of Wallace, former school board member up there, later wrote a letter of recommendation on behalf of, uh, of the candidate for, of her choice. You know, it was really a chance to see, you know, who was kind of lobbying behind the scenes for, for the various candidates and the various applicants for the job and getting a better sense of how Sean Keough entered the picture and when Sean Keough entered, entered the picture. We were finally able to pin down a little bit of that timetable. And I love that because you hit the ground running with the story right where Sean Keough comes into the mix. And so just walk me through the beginning of the story and what you learned and how you chose to, to start the story off that way. Well, this is a question we've had for quite some time. We knew that Sean Keough applied in August. She has said that. The governor's office has said that. And we the original we, deadline you said was June. June 17. Yeah, yeah. So that all we knew. But what nobody had never really said for sure was, well, who, re who reached out to whom here? And it was pretty clear from the email trail that it... Uh, at one point on August 28th, Greg Wilson from the governor's office, friend of the podcast, uh, emailed Sean Keough with a link to the page where you fill out an to online help her application apply. Yeah. and said, okay, you don't really need to do very much here. It's a fairly basic application, which Sean Keough then turned in two hours later. And then she followed up with her resume all in late August, went back to the governor's office and said, okay, now, can, can you tell me you know, how we got here? And, and they did... The governor's office did say that they had reached out before the email to gauge uh, Keogh's interest in, in the position. So that's kind of how we got to this point uh, on Sean Keogh and, and finally could, could firm up that timetable and kind of firm up that chronology. But beyond kind of firming up the timetable surrounding Sean Keogh, what really unfolded in the emails was this fairly concerted lobbying effort surrounding two candidates, two applicants for a state board position, both from North Idaho, uh, John Getty, the former chairman of the, uh, the Senate State Affairs Committee, and Dick Vester, who I alluded to earlier. Uh, he's an eye doctor from Wallace, former mayor, former school board member. You saw letters of recommendation from some key players, both for Getty and for Vester. Uh, Greg Wilson of the governor's office has spoken to both Getty and Vester, spoke to Vet, uh, Getty and Vester during the summer before Sean Keogh applied. Now, the governor's office is saying that both Getty and Vester and all of the applicants, and we're talking about like 45 applicants, uh, you know, including Keogh. So you've got 44 other candidates, applicants for, uh, for state board positions. The governor's office says that everybody's still being considered. But what seemed to play out as I viewed it, was you had a spot, a North Idaho member of the state board and Don Soltman who was stepping down. Tradition and political realities kind of dictate that governors tend to want to have some geographic balance on the state board. So it was pretty clear that you know, Governor Little wanted to get somebody from North Idaho to succeed Don Soltman. And all of the politicking seemed to be directed towards that spot right. on the state board. Very little in, in the email trail regarding uh, Richard Westerberg from Preston, who's uh, kind of staying on the state board uh, on an interim basis while Little looks for a successor. Westerberg is from Preston, the far southeast corner of the state. Uh, 
you would think that perhaps uh, Governor Little would want to look for somebody from that uh, part of the state to replace Westerberg. Again, he doesn't have to. Right. He could appoint somebody from North Idaho. He could appoint, you know, somebody from Boise. He could do anything. There, there's no uh, restriction placed on how the governor fills these positions. So we don't really know what's going on with that position. We, we didn't see a whole lot of traffic. We didn't see a whole lot of conversation about that position. So, you know, that part of the story is still yet to be told and something we'll be following up on. But, you know, what I really just tried to do with this story is just sort of weave the tale and, and kind of take us from the, the spring when folks like John Getty uh, approached the governor's office even before the announcement came, even before the governor said, yes, I've got two vacancies on the state board, and yes, I'd like to get applications. You had folks like John Getty approach the governor and say, I'd like to be considered, I'd like to apply. You had applications coming in before the, the announcement. Not really surprising. I think anybody watching education politics could say, well, yeah. a couple of state board members who've been around for a while, their terms and in June, good chance they may decide that they've uh, done their part and want to have their lives back because this is a very intense, unpaid, uh, unpaid appointed position. Yeah. Um, so I don't think anybody was terribly surprised that there were vacancies. So I don't think it should be surprising that folks uh, were starting to put their hat in the ring early. But you know, really, what I just tried to do was, you know take us behind the scenes a little bit and, and get us up to date and try to fill in some of the blanks and, and you know, plug in some of the holes in this story as it's unfolded publicly. And, and again, we'll be watching this closely because there is still a vacancy and there, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of conversation about it yet. At some point, you would assume that something's going to happen there, that something's going to break. The governor's office says they're under no particular timetable to fill the position. So, you know, the story's not yet completely finished, but I wanted to try to get the get us a sense of how this is all playing out so far. Well, I, I think you hit, the, pardon me, I think you hit the mark on all your objectives. And it's just fun. If, Like you said, if you're a political junkie and you wonder, what's the process like for how these political appointments are filled, and this one in particular with the state board? It's a lot of fun. A lot of influential folks, you can kind of see them coming out and lobbying the governor in his office on how, on which direction they think the state should go, on on which candidates might be able to move the needle or make a difference. You see some behind-the-scenes politicking. You see where some alliances line. Uh, it's, it's a fun story, but it's an important story that really peels back the curtain and, and lets a lot more sunshine in on this process, which really had kind of played out, you know, sort of behind closed doors and, and, and away from the spotlight up until just now. So if you want to get caught up, it's a lot of fun. It's still our top story right now over at idahoednews.org. That's the homepage. That's where uh, you can find it. And uh, it's just a fascinating look behind the curtain. And we don't always get that. And so that's why I was excited about that. No, thanks. And, and again, like I said, this was just sort of a, a fun story to write. And you know, sometimes you get to a point in a story where you're, you're sitting there, as I was a couple of days ago, it's like, well, I've got all these emails. Where's the story? And it finally, you know, not a big revelation. It wasn't, you know, a, a moment of brilliance. It was just sort of a no-brainer moment where I just said, you know, the story is just the timeline. Yeah. Just, just go from the beginning to the end and just weave a story and, and see how that goes. And that was, it, it was fun to write and I hope it's fun to read. Well, it's fun stuff. And like you said, um, 
thanks to our public records law, we were able to tell this story and to write this story and obtain this information. We always talk on this podcast about how we're going to push for disclosure and we're going to push for bringing information about how your government works out in front of citizens, whether that's public documents or records. Um, and so this is another reason of, of why the public records law is so important to us and, and kind of how it can be used in action, how you can use a law um, and, and, and put it into action. So fun and, stuff. And hold that thought because we'll have another uh, testimonial for the uh, Public Records Act coming up later in the podcast. But let's shift gears to another event that unfolded this week, uh, one that we've been waiting on. Uh, you were there uh, in person. I was kind of watching it on my computer. This being the, the panel discussion about diversity programs and inclusion programs at Boise State. Four legislators, two Republicans, two Democrats uh, sharing the uh, podium. You, you were there. Give us a sense, not just of what they said, but give us a sense of the room and the mood and the atmosphere. Yeah, Tuesday night in the Boise State Student Union building. I guess the thing that immediately jumped out at me when I walked in the room was just how packed it was and how crowded it was and what the turnout was like. And so obviously the context here is the diversity issues, which have generated headlines since the summer at Boise State, since July, when Representative Barbara Ehart, the state representative from Idaho Falls, wrote that letter to New Boise State President Marlene Trump urging Dr. Trump to rethink a series of diversity and equality and inclusivity initiatives. 27 other House Republicans signed this letter. So there's a lot of interest in this, and 300-plus people showed up on Tuesday night. The fact that you know, one of the things that jumped, jumped out at me was a heavy turnout from the student body mm -hmm. at, at Boise State. And just looking around the room, it was a diverse group of students. It was, it was men and women, students of color, different ethnicities, um, but a large turnout for a Tuesday night. The four legislators were Representative Ehart, who wrote the original diversity letter. Her seatmate, Republican Representative Brian Zollinger, also from Idaho Falls. Then you had House Minority Leader Matt Erpelting, a Democrat from Boise, and Senator Cherie Buckner-Webb, a Boise Democrat who sits on the Senate Education Committee. And it was 90 minutes. It was moderated. It was, and this was really cool. It was put together by the Young Democrats and the College Republicans. These groups teamed up to sponsor the event, to organize it, uh, to play host to it. And then the faculty advisors for the two respective Democrat and Republican groups served as the moderators during the event. They controlled the questions for about 70 minutes of the 90 minutes. And in front and center was the diversity letter and, and the whole issue of these diversity programs. The Republicans, in response, you know, addressing their letter, said that they really feel that this is an example of a social justice agenda that has run amok that there's this bloated bureaucracy um, where higher ed spending is un increasing and the taxpayer is on the hook. And they also attempted to suggest that there's a First Amendment issue without giving any specifics or giving any examples of what they were talking about. They attempted to paint a picture of a campus where young conservative students are afraid to speak out or in some cases even bullied by their own professor if they were wearing... The example was a Make America Great Again hat that would uh, support President Trump. But 
the representatives who made these points didn't say if this was something that had happened at Boise State or if these were specific events that they were talking about or if this was more a collection of things that they had read about in different campuses. It wasn't really clear what they were talking about. Um, but meanwhile, the Democrats were absolutely in favor of saying that we need these diversity issues. It's going to help us have a richer, uh, more full campus. It's going to help us attract and serve minority students and underserved students. And in the long run, this is really going to help our economy. It's going to help these workplaces flourish. So Democrats said it's completely appropriate. We need this. We probably need more of this. The student crowd at Boise State was very supportive uh, of the diversity measures. And yeah, I was going to say the mood of the room, from what I could gather watching it on the on the computer, it definitely seemed to be uh, in favor of the uh, diversity programs. It, it for sure. It felt like a, yeah, a very, friendlier audience for uh, Sheree Bucknarev and Matt Erpel. Very, very, very much so, to the point that uh, Barbara E., or the Republican, pointed it out that it was a, a partisan crowd against her. But the audience had been warned kind of against outbursts and clapping and applause. And so most of the time, they, they kind of snapped their fingers when they agreed with a point to show approval and respect. But there were a handful of times where they did cheer. And they did groan and let their displeasure be known with Representative Ehart, specifically when she used the word segregation several times and then when she evoked yeah, the name of Reverend uh, Dr. King. Matt Erpelding took her to task for that and said, let's be appropriate and correct about our use of language. Uh, whatever you think about what's going on on Boise State, it's not segregation. Right. And, and that led to the most, the moment of the most wild, sustained applause of the whole evening. Um, but it, it was interesting. I don't know that there was a ton of like hard news broken from what they said. I think it was pretty predictable that the Republicans supported their letter and the Democrats supported the diversity initiatives and the, the students supported the diversity initiatives. I guess one of the most interesting things to me, though, was the talk about funding. As yes, you had covered yes. this summer, we know of at least two Idaho House members, two Idaho House Republicans, who have either gone on their own campaign Facebook page or done a national radio interview suggesting that they want to defund Boise State University in response to these diversity and inclusivity programs. Brian Zollinger, the Republican from Idaho Falls, two separate times on Tuesday night, said he was not aware of any effort or any petition to defund Boise State University, and he did not know of anybody talking about defunding Boise State University, despite the fact that it had been widely covered that two of his colleagues in the House are talking about doing just that, including one of the representatives from his yeah, neighboring legislative yeah. district. Um, and that generated an enormous amount of media publicity this summer, yeah, Kevin, as so, you know. Uh, yeah. There's, this has been a very public aspect of the debate, uh, the specter of lawmakers talking about defunding Boise State. You know, you, Chad Christensen, the Republican from Ammon, which is a bedroom community at Idaho yeah. Falls. So, you know, you know, Bonneville County legislator uh, Chad Christensen has been talking about defunding Boise State. I've written about it. It is, a, at this point, it is the most widely read piece on our website for the month of October. This is not a secret. You know, the discussion of defunding is not a secret. So for... For Representative Zollinger to suggest that nobody's talking about defunding, which is you know, which was his direct quote, right? Nobody yeah. is talking about defunding right. Boise State. Well, 
two of his colleagues are talking about defunding Boise State. Now, whether they will get anywhere with that. And they've gone public with that. It isn't just like cloak and dagger stuff behind closed doors and secret meetings with passwords and handshakes. They're going public with it. They are publicly saying that they're fed up with what they're seeing at Boise State, and they're talking about making a push to defund Boise State. They're being very public about their sentiments on this issue. So, you know, to say that nobody's talking about it just isn't accurate. Right. And you you pointed that out. Uh, I think we both pointed it out over social media on Tuesday night. We got into a little bit of exchange of an exchange about that. The facts are the facts. You do have right. lawmakers talking about defunding. Now, whether they're going to get anywhere with this is certainly open to debate because Chad Christensen and Tammy Nichols, the two House Republicans talking about it, first-term House members, they don't sit on JFAC, the, right. the Budget Writing Committee. They don't sit on the House Education Committee. Hard to see where those two legislators have the juice to make a concerted push unless they get a lot of allies in a, in a hurry. But the fact remains that this is a specter in the debate over uh, diversity and inclusion programs at Boise State. The question of funding Boise State is, is certainly clouding the, the discussion. Yeah, I thought that that was probably the most significant newsworthy item from the event was this question over the funding and what the Republicans said versus the opportunity to fact check that a little bit and say, well, actually, this is a public discussion, at least at some levels, at least with those two Republican House members that they are talking about it. So that was important. I don't think that we've heard the last word on this. If you want to get caught up, you can head to the homepage at IdahoEdNews.org and find out a little bit more about the forum and about some of the questions that were asked and about some of the things that folks said. We haven't heard the last of it, though. Um, There was a huge turnout. It was, by and large, other than a handful of outbursts, it was respectful and cordial. At the end, Representative Ehart kind of had this moment where she struck up this alliance and said she wanted to listen uh, to Senator Buckner Webb, who was the only black member of the Idaho Senate, uh, and Representative Ehart said she admires her and, 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 and wants to learn and listen from her. So you had that moment at the end. Um, but we have not heard the last of this. I think that this will continue to be a talking point as we get closer and closer uh, to the 2020 legislative session, which kicks off in the new year in January. Right. Barely 10 weeks away from the beginning of the session. And you know, while this was a very civil discussion Tuesday night, make no mistake, there's still a pretty deep philosophical divide. Oh, yeah. And I, I suspect that we'll see that uh, revisited when we get uh, get to the start of the legislative session. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we haven't heard the last of this. One more big story that I wanted to get into, also thanks to the public record law, yes. <laughs> a little bit more information about the master educator premium, which was the big salary incentive this year that the legislature and the state rolled out in an attempt to financially reward Idaho's best, most established, highest performing teachers, your master teachers. It's called the Master Educator Premium. We've written about the rollout seemingly all year. We've talked about it several times on the podcast. But you dug into some more of the numbers, Kevin. What were the numbers you looked at? And and what's the emerging data starting to show about what we know about who received the premiums? Right. So Randy Schrader, Went, back, went to bat for us on this. Our, our data analyst uh, submitted the public records request uh, to the State Board of Education. And what we wanted and 
what we ultimately did get from the state board is a breakdown of where those premiums went. We knew that 1,200 and 1,200 plus teachers are going to receive yep. this bonus, $4,000 a year, presumably over the course of three years. That's what the law says now. Yeah. The first year payments of $4,000 a year. So we wanted to find out who benefited from this. And the numbers are pretty startling. 54% of the premiums are going to go to teachers in two school districts. Boise and West Ada. Say it's two largest districts yes, the, based on enrollment. Yeah, absolutely, and that's important to keep in mind. But still, <laughs> put those numbers into some perspective. Boise and West Ada, while they are the two largest uh, districts in the state, taken together, about, uh, I want to say about, about a fifth of our students, maybe a little bit more than a fifth of the state's students, enroll in West Ada and Boise. So 54% of the premiums versus you know, about 20% of, of the overall enrollment, those numbers are pretty startling. And it goes a little bit deeper than that. 40 of the 115 school districts across the state, no teachers received a master educator premium. Now, we don't know if teachers applied for those premiums. That's a set of numbers that we, frankly, we did not ask for. And I think that's a follow-up request that we'll probably do here in the, in the very near future. But... 40 school districts across the state, mostly small districts, but some districts of you know, maybe 1,500 to 2,000 students, no master educator premiums. Charter schools, which you know, taken together represent maybe about 8% of overall school enrollment, only 18 teachers in charter schools received master educator premiums. So barely 1% of the premiums went to teachers in charter schools. And again, charter schools you know, 8% of enrollment. So those numbers were fairly skewed and fairly surprising. And we, uh, we went and got a lot of reaction from state leaders about, well, what does this mean? Nobody is saying, hey, we got to get rid of the master educator premium. But you, you did get some concerns about, are we doing enough for rural schools? Is this, you know, the approach that's going to help us uh, reward teachers in, in rural districts? Also wanted to take a step back and look at, well, why did so many teachers in Boise and West Ada uh, get premiums? And what we found out was that in both districts, uh, district officials and union officials really stepped up from the beginning. Yeah. Right after this law was passed in 2015, telling teachers, here's how you're going to need to apply. Um, here's what it's going to take in terms of uh, you know, what sort of student data are you going to need to uh, accumulate over the course of of three years because part of this arduous application process was showing three years of student growth and, and compiling data to show how you've uh, how you've encouraged uh, student growth how you've uh, you know how your students have improved over the course of, uh, of time so you had teachers in the districts getting a lot of coaching up front about what it would take and then in the application process getting a lot of uh, collaborative work, getting a lot of uh, support along the way as teachers you know, went into this you know, 80, 100 hour process, 120 hour process we've heard uh, of completing the uh, portfolio to apply for the premiums. So a lot more support in those districts. I'm not saying that that didn't happen anyplace else in the state, but it helps explain why so many teachers in Boise and West Ada were able to apply for the premiums and ultimately get the premiums. Now, this was a process that uh, the, the districts uh, you know, took on from the beginning and, and tried to help their staffs, 
be prepared to apply for the premiums. And, and I think we can see the results of that uh, to a certain extent playing out with where we see the premiums awarded. There's one other thing that I just wanted to point out, um, and it's not a scientific thing by any means, but it might go a little bit uh, of a way towards explaining a little bit of what's happening. One of the requirements to getting the Master Educator Premium was you had to have eight years of classroom teaching experience. And so perhaps in some of the very smaller school districts or some of the newer charter schools, maybe some of those teachers don't have the eight years, whereas we already know just sort of anecdotally that the Boise and West Ada districts are kind of destination districts where veteran teachers yeah, uh, will want to land. That doesn't explain everything, but that's maybe one small bit of context that plays in at some level. But we were just talking before we turned on the microphone that we have a couple more ideas for some things we want to drill down even further and some new data sets we want to request to maybe open up even that much more of the picture uh, to, to, to continue the reporting. Uh, because this is a big topic, you're right, there has been some concern about the rollout of the Master Educator Premium Program. The task force has talked about it this summer, and they still are talking about this recommendation dealing with veteran teacher pay, about building out the career ladder, and still within the periphery of that discussion, on, or on the, along the edges of that discussion, is some discussion about, you know, to give us some money to do that, do we maybe look at discontinuing the Master Educator Premium Program at some point, flowing that money into the career ladder? That's not official. The task force won't vote on final recommendations until November 4th, and even after that, there's still a long way to go to see how those would be implemented. But that discussion is kind of hanging out there. And so we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But it has been a little bit of a rocky rollout, as you mentioned. I think the numbers are eye-opening, as you mentioned. And so, again, not to sound like a broken record, but another issue where I don't think we've heard the last word. Right. And this matters in the big picture in terms of the budget because... Yeah. Oh, nearly $5 million went out in these master educator premiums. So it's not a small investment of state dollars. It's not as large an investment as uh, legislators and state officials expected because, frankly, I don't think there were as many applicants as Well, we've uh, talked about expected. how the state initially thought there could have been up to 10,000 teachers eligible who could have met the minimum criteria. And we saw, what, just over 1,400 apply. 1,400. So, so thousands no, of teachers may have sat this out, in court, uh, including, as, as we've reported, uh, the reigning teacher of the year from, from American year. Falls, right. Mark Badia, from last year, did not apply. Right. So now we have a better sense of how many teachers did apply and how much this cost. Um, that may, you know, kind of update and refine the debate over whether the Master Educator Premium is a vehicle going forward to uh, properly reward uh, veteran teachers. It'll but, be interesting to hear more and more legislators react to this when they hear the news. Uh, I think that'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot there in, in these numbers. You know, again, more to uh, more to dig into here, but we really wanted to get a sense of where the money went. And you know, like like I say, you know, and you know, like I say, those numbers were fairly startling, and the reactions that we got, you know, I basically heard more or less the same thing from Bill Gilbert, the co-chair of Governor Little's task force, as I heard from Stephanie Myers, who's the head of the Boise Education Association, the local teachers union. Both said, 
when you look at these numbers, it doesn't feel like it's a an accurate representation yeah. of quality teachers around the state. Yeah, and, and that's you know, and that's the bottom line. If this is a vehicle to adequately reward the star teachers from across the state, is this getting the job done? And that's open to debate. It's an open question at this point. And you know, brand new program, first year program. These are the kind of questions that, that tend to come up when you roll out a new program. Yeah. And there may be opportunities to tweak it, uh, to change it, to improve it. They may leave it as is. I mean, it's, it's written in law right now. So if nothing changes, if you don't hear anything from us about it changing, the program will continue to go forward at $4,000 a year because that's what's written in state law right now. But I'm saying stay tuned because I think we will have the policy discussion about what to do with this, and we may see some tweaks or we may see something more significant than that. But again, thanks to the public records law, we now have more information about how this government program is working, about how these taxpayer dollars are going to be spent, and in a general sense about who's benefiting mm -hmm. from the program. And so thank you to that, and thank you to the public records law. If you want to get caught up, idahoednews.org is the place to be. Um, running a little bit long right now, but I want to look ahead to next week because a couple of important things are coming up really in the next two weeks, right, Kevin? Right, so we've got school elections coming up on November 5th. Uh, this is, uh, these are still a little bit under the radar elections because if you live in Boise or Meridian, you, you know that you've got mayor's races going on and city council races. Those have gotten most of the attention. But this is the first time around for school board elections to take place on a, a November election date alongside municipal elections. Brand new state law going into effect for the first time this November. We'll do a preview. We'll give you an overview of what to expect and, and where races might be unfolding across uh, across the state. Meanwhile, uh, more quality time with the House Education Committee. Barbara E. Hart uh, et al. The band will be back together on Tuesday and Wednesday. You'll be covering it. Uh, House Education Committee having kind of an informational session. Yep, they're going to be meeting at the State House Tuesday and Wednesday. No, the legislative session is not kicking off early, uh, but Chairman Lance Clow got permission from the Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, to have this informational meeting. They're not going to introduce bills. They're not going to vote on policy decisions, but they are bringing together a host of state agencies and officials from the Governor's Office, State Department of Education, State Board of Education, to go over the responsibilities for the different agencies and departments and how the different sources of funding come together for this nearly $2 billion K-12 public school budget. So it's going to be kind of informational and the idea is to sort of uh, hit the ground running and get geared up for the 2020 legislative session, which will be here before we know it. Like I said, I think the ground rules are they can't introduce bills or vote on anything. They're not going to take public comment, but I'm going to be there. And Kevin, I do have a bit of breaking news to report. The House Education Committee, still the wild card in the legislature. Yeah, and there's never a dull moment when you have the House Education Committee <laughs> in town. So it'll be interesting, even in an informational context, to see and hear what uh, what goes down Tuesday and Wednesday. So you'll be there for that. I'll be there for all the fun. You can get caught up. We'll have coverage at idahoednews.org. We will have your election preview yep. next week. And then the morning of the 6th, you can come back for some results. IdahoEdNews.org right. will be the uh, place to be. Well, hey, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.